Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. Episode 85, Antignan Macedon, Storm Clouds in the West. In July of 217, a large gathering of delegates met at the city of Naupactus to negotiate for the end of the social war which had gripped much of Greece for the better part of three years. Philip V, the young ruler of Macedonia who defied the expectations of his peers through his exemplary generalship, could sit comfortably knowing he had proven his mettle against the hate of the Aetolian League. He and his trusted representatives from the Achaean League ordered that the Aetolians were to cease all hostilities and return to the status quo from before the war's outbreak. The beleaguered party quickly agreed to the terms presented, bringing the conflict officially to a close. During the proceedings, one of the Aetolian delegates named Agelaus of Naupactus presented a speech in front of the conference, urging that both parties come to an understanding. As Greeks, it was not right that they should continue to wage war against one another, when they could instead be unified and work together as one against any threat that loomed on the horizon. In the west, he pointed out, a great war was being fought by the Romans and the Carthaginians that was to decide the fate of Italy. Not only that, but he proclaimed that whomever emerged the victor would simply turn their attention to Greece. Agelaus asked Philip to halt his wars on the cities of Hellas, and instead looked to the western regions to direct his ambition and strike now, lest they all fall to the barbarian invaders. Quote, For, he said, if you ever allow the clouds now gathering in the west to loom over Greece, I deeply fear that all the games we now play with each other, our truces and our wars, will be so thoroughly denied us that we shall find ourselves imploring the gods to grant us this right to make war and peace with one another as we wish, and in general to manage our own internal disputes. Agalaus' speech seemed quite agreeable to everyone involved, and especially Philip, who kept a close ear to the ground regarding the outcome of the Second Punic War. His burning desire for world conquest was sufficiently stoked by what he had seen and heard, and the Antigonid ruler would begin his plan of conquest in Illyria and beyond. In the eyes of Polybius, who wrote about the Peace of Naupactus, this was a tremendous change in the history of the Mediterranean. Never before did events in the West dictate the internal affairs of the Greeks. Italy, Africa, and Greece were now interconnected for the first time by this new political framework. Philip would begin the series of wars that would lead to the downfall of the Antigone dynasty, and eventually, the conquest of the Hellenistic world. This is quite some heavy stuff to begin with, and not all necessarily agree with Polybius' take on the outbreak of what the Roman historians would call the First Macedonian War. We also need to take a few steps back and give a bit more context to the events leading up to Philip's momentous decision. As we can recall, there is virtually no evidence that Rome and Macedonia had ever formally established any sort of contact prior to the reign of Philip. While we do find examples of Roman representatives meeting with the Ptolemaic and Seleucid houses during the 3rd century, none seem to have been dispatched to the Antigonid court, even among the embassies that were sent throughout Greece after the end of the First Illyrian War. Nothing suggests that the Antigonids felt particularly snug by this lack of diplomatic outreach, however. Rome eventually came to the attention of Philip following the arrival of a new face in his court, Demetrius of Pharos, 
who fled his native city in 219 after incurring the wrath of the Republic during the Second Illyrian War. Demetrius was a former friend of Antigonus III Docin, having served as an ally in the war against Cleomenes of Sparta, and now called upon Philip to provide sanctuary in honor of his late uncle. The Antigonid king was happy to play host, and Demetrius quickly established himself as a trusted member of Philip's circle of advisors. According to Polybius, it was Demetrius who first urged Philip to direct his energies against Rome. While the king was participating in the Nemean Games of 217, a messenger brought him a letter with news of the Battle of Lake Trasimene, which left Hannibal Barca in control over much of northern Italy. Philip showed the letter to Demetrius in private, and his advisor enthusiastically encouraged him to make peace with the Aetolians and take advantage of Rome's weakness. First, he must strike at Illyria, where the Romans established a foothold, then move on to Italy. Demetrius's motivation was obvious, since his expulsion from Illyria would have served as good enough reason behind his hatred of the Republic. His convincing of Philip is perhaps a little bit more suspect, as Polybius claims that Demetrius had played to the Antigonids' desire to become a world conqueror, with Italy being his first overseas territory. Based on this suggestion, Philip gathered his counsels together, and all agreed that a peace with the Aetolians was in order. Following this was the meeting at Naupactus, which served as the introduction to this episode, and Philip's subsequent mobilization towards a western campaign. Polybius's explanation behind Philip's anti-Roman activities has received some criticism, as was the idea of it being anti-Roman at all. One of the key points in Polybius's argument was Philip's deep desire to become a world conqueror, to the point where it was even troubling him in his sleep. Sure, Philip's conduct in the social war was impressive given his age, but a successful campaign in Greece serving as a prelude to world conquest may be a hasty jump to conclusions. The Macedonian kingdom was certainly one of the three great powers of the Hellenistic period, but the Seleucids and Ptolemies had a far better chance at world empire given their size and wealth. Additionally, Polybius may be over-exaggerating Demetrius's role in encouraging Philip's hostility against Rome, since we know he was drawing upon the writings of Aratus of Sicyon, one of the king's other advisors who was opposed to the western policies of Demetrius. Rather than attributing Philip's turn to the outcome of Trasimene, Livy suggests that it was the disaster at Cannae that finally convinced him to pursue an anti-Roman policy. As we will see in a little bit, Philip's first actions were taken against the Illyrians, who were involved with Rome to some capacity. However, Scardalatus, the new ruler of the Ardii and a former ally-turned-foe of Philip, had been raiding the Macedonian countryside and engaging in piracy, which was enough of a reason to prompt retaliation from the Antigonid ruler. In this viewpoint, Rome's impact was incidental, not the direct cause for the change in attitude. On the other hand, Polybius's rationale may not be so far-fetched. Philip's passion for war is well-documented, and he reveled in his role of warrior king. His success in the social war at such a young age, younger than even Alexander the Great, mind you, could have boosted his confidence to a degree that an imperial undertaking seemed plausible. His ancestors were Antigonus I Monophthalmus and Demetrius I Polyarchides, ambitious men who nearly reunited Alexander's empire, and could have served as models for the young Antigonid ruler. Rome's apparent weakness after Trasimene would have also allowed Philip to take the advantage and try to expand his reach. 
While I have expressed my doubts regarding the existence of a Roman protectorate in Illyria, a Macedonian campaign taking place so close to Italy's shores would not have been well received by the Senate, given the tense situation in the Punic War. But Hannibal's armies ought to have kept them preoccupied from any retaliatory strikes, as Philip consolidated the region. Now, with one war having drawn to a close, it was time to embark on another expedition that would hopefully see the first steps towards a new Antigonid empire. Hello, and bonjour. My name is Josh Zucker, and I want to take you on a journey through some of the most exciting events of the late Middle Ages. Valois Burgundy was one of the medieval world's greatest polities, and its legacy can still be felt today. Its dukes inherited, conquered, and politicked their way into forging a state between the German Empire and the Kingdom of France that rivaled them both. From the Hundred Years' War to Hanseatic merchants, from urban workers to Joan of Arc, and from gallant knights to gunpowder weapons, the Grand Dukes of the West had a part to play in almost all of Western Europe's biggest developments in the 14th and 15th centuries. If you want to learn more about the glamorous rise and dramatic fall of the Valois Dukes of Burgundy, please join me for Grand Dukes of the West, a history of Valois Burgundy. Following the peace of Nalpactus in the summer of 217, word reached the king that the RDI had been engaging in a campaign of brigandage throughout western Macedonia, under the authority of their new ruler, Skirdilatus. Philip was understandably annoyed by this, but the conquest of Illyria was a necessary step to securing the Greek peninsula, if he was going to ever consider undertaking an overseas operation. The Macedonians were able to recapture any lost settlements of their own, but also seize several new Illyrian territories before retiring at the onset of winter. As the seasons passed into the spring of 216, Philip built and trained a small fleet of about a hundred ships that were to be used as transport craft to ferry his army. The start of that summer saw the first naval operation conducted along the shores of Illyria by way of going around the Peloponnese. Polybius explicitly tells us that Philip had no intentions of actually getting caught up in an engagement, and only set out upon confirmation that the Roman fleet was occupied on the opposite side of Sicily. The king's information was not entirely true, for it seems that Scardilatus had sent messages to the Senate to inform them of Philip's plans to stage an invasion of Illyria by sea. Ten Roman ships were spotted by informants as they were passing through the Strait of Messina to investigate, a rather small detachment given the severity of the Hannibalic War. Despite outnumbering the Romans, the king instead panicked and ordered a general retreat back to the Aegean. This was a pretty embarrassing misfire for a prospective world conqueror, as Polybius points out that the Macedonian navy could have easily seized the Roman ships without much alarm, given the problems afflicting the Republic at the time. In spite of this setback, the king continued his anti-Roman policy by taking it to the next step. The disaster at the Battle of Cannae at 216 was a major turning point for the Second Punic War, serving as sufficient evidence for some groups to side with Hannibal Barca against the Republic. Philip was one of them, taking the initiative and sending an envoy named Xenophanes to forge an alliance between himself and Hannibal in the beginning of 215. In his fragmentary Book 7, Polybius provides us a copy of the treaty signed between the Macedonians and Carthaginians. While it is too lengthy to read all of it, the key points are as follows. Philip and the Samaki would become allies with Carthage, 
and would come to each other's aid should it be called upon. Once Rome surrenders, they would be forced to give up any claims to Illyria and the adjacent islands, Corsaira, Apollonia, Pharos, etc., and Demetrius of Pharos would be restored to his former position. If the Romans decided to wage war against either Macedonia or Carthage in the future, each side would join an alliance once again. The authenticity of the document is not in doubt, but the more patriotic Livy claims that Hannibal intended for the destruction of Rome rather than just its submission, and that Philip was to invade Italy with a fleet of 200 ships. The notion of a Macedonian invasion at that time seems unlikely, but this was not the news that the Senate wanted to hear. According to Livy, the King Zanfoy's Xenophanes and some Punic agents were caught by a Roman fleet off the coast of Calabria, intending to sail back to Macedon to formally ratify the treaty with Philip. Though the Greek attempted to claim that he was merely returning from a meeting with another Roman general on behalf of his lord, the commanding officer recognized that the nervous officials accompanying Xenophanes were Carthaginians. Their interrogation revealed the deception, and the Senate was terrified by the prospect of facing another front that was about to open up, given their anxiety over their fragile security. Fifty-five ships were then stationed at Brundisium in Tarentum, should the king launch a direct attack against Italy. Philip, in the meanwhile, had to send another embassy to Hannibal. But upon receiving confirmation of the agreement, he prepared to conduct a series of operations in Greece and Illyria. Appian suggests that Philip attacked Corsaira in 215, and we know that he was crossing into Epirus the year after that, where he took the city of Oricum and laid siege to Apollonia with 120 smaller ships. The Senate apparently had no idea this was happening until Oricum ambassadors showed up to the camp of Marcus Valerius Livinus, the commander overseeing the fleet in Brundisium and responsible for defending against the Macedonians. They begged Livinus for assistance, and the commander set sail for the city in the summer of 214, effectively marking the beginning of the First Macedonian War. Oricum was captured without any real issue, which prompted the besieged Apollonians to dispatch their own envoys to request Roman assistance. Livinus sent a junior officer with 2,000 troops to cross upriver towards the city whereupon they disembarked and stuck their way into the city from a direction that was not being patrolled by the Macedonians. Once inside Apollonia, the Romans mustered the fighting men of the city and set off the following evening to Philip's camp. Livy suggests that the attackers became sloppy in their defenses, and nearly a thousand men were able to sneak past their lines before the alarms were set off and the killing commenced. The Macedonians panicked and abandoned their siege work in droves, with Philip fleeing his tent for safety. According to Roman propaganda, the king barely had enough time to get his undergarments on. His hopes of making an escape by sailing up the river in his ships were quickly dashed, though, when the rest of the Roman fleet blockaded the river's mouth. Rather than hand over his ships to the Romans to be used against him, the king ordered for his vessels to be burned, while the Macedonian army would march back to safe territory. Livinus did not pursue the king's army but decided that the best way to deter further Macedonian aggression was to spend the winter in Orticum, closing out the year with no other engagements. The loss of Apollonia was yet another embarrassing setback for Philip, who was dealing with some internal turmoil within his own borders. Once again, we return to Eratus of Sicyon, a figure who has appeared in our narrative of Macedonian history several times over. Since his earliest days as king, Philip saw Erantus as a valuable member of his court, not only for his sage advice, but also his connections with the Achaean League. 
Plutarch and Polybius stress Aratus' role as a moderating figure on Philip's more ambitious tendencies, their friendship even surviving the conspiracy that tried to have the Scipionian frame for treason. It seems, though, that the king's successes in the social war had gone to his head, and his relationship with Aratus began to sour. The first real spat took place over the Peloponnesian city of Messini. In mid-214, the city's various political factions were squabbling over control, compelling the leading representatives from the Samaki, namely Philip and Aratus, to intervene. Philip and his army arrived the day before Aratus, and a massacre broke out between the two Messenian parties, leaving over 200 dead. Plutarch claims that Philip purposely incited a riot so as to weaken both groups, much to Aratus' anger when he discovered the gruesome aftermath. Aratus the Younger, who at one point had been a close companion and lover of Philip, called the king a repulsive man directly to his face for his actions, but surprisingly was met with resolute silence in spite of the insult. Messini was now politically vulnerable, so the Antigone arranged for the sacrifice of an ox to divine omens for his next course of action, summoning both of his counselors, Aratus and Demetrius of Pharos, to interpret the entrails. Acting as the shoulder devil, Demetrius advised the king to take the bull by the horns and seize the city's citadel, whereas Aratus stressed good faith with the Messenians and let them retain their ownership. Philip decided to follow the Scipionians' recommendation, but the relationship between both men was now clearly strained. Over the next several months, Aratus had increasingly avoided the king's company, going so far as to refuse to participate in the campaigns in Epirus and Illyria the same one that eventually resulted in the embarrassing defeat by the Romans. Worse yet was the rebellion of Messini in 213, despite Philip's goodwill and Aratus' advice, which prompted the king to order Demetrius of Pharos to try and take the city by force, but the advisor was killed in the fighting. A campaign of fire and sword was then taken to the Messenian countryside, an act condemned by Polybius, despite the fact that such conduct against rebels was commonly accepted practice. As a consequence for his failure against Rome and the revolt of Messini, Philip increasingly began to crack down hard on the Greeks, and the court became a dangerous place for anyone who earned the king's wrath. If we are to believe Polybius and Plutarch, the Antigone ruler directed much of his ire towards his former companions, Aratus the Elder and the Younger. The king had seduced the wife of Junior Aratus, an Argive noblewoman named Polycrataea, which Aratus the Elder discovered, but kept silent to protect his son. Over the next few months, the Scipionian began to experience gradually worsening chest congestion and coughing fits with bloody spittle, trademark signs of tuberculosis. According to rumor, this was no late-onset sickness, but a slow-acting poison slipped into Aratus's drink on royal authority. The senior statesman was apparently fully aware of the protracted poisoning, but simply accepted his impending doom. Perhaps disillusioned by the prospects of seeing his beloved Achaean League and the rest of Greece becoming increasingly burdened by the heavier yoke of Macedon, Aratus is said to have described his poisoning to a companion as the wages of royal friendship. In 213, Aratus of Sicyon died of his condition. His son followed him not long afterwards for it seems that the junior Aratus suffered a severe mental breakdown and threw himself into a life of debauchery and self-destructiveness that resulted in his death the same year. Fingers were once again pointed at Philip, 
accused of supplying a poison that would affect Aratus the Younger's mental condition, and drove him mad. What sort of pharmacological concoction could this have been is never specified, and the rumors of poison should be scrutinized, but the fact that Philip married the now-widowed Polycratea so shortly after her husband's demise leaves little room for explanation. A 17-time leader of the Achaean League, Arontas was a pivotal figure in the history of Greece for the better part of 40 years. It was his skills as a politician and diplomat that enabled the Achaean League to emerge as a major challenge to the Macedonian hegemony, and though his decision to ally with Antigonus Doson during the Cleomenian War was viewed as a great misstep, he remained a beloved figure by his countrymen, being posthumously named the founder of Sicyon and the first man to be buried within the city's walls. To Polybius, the loss of Aratus meant that there was no one to rein in Philip's ambitions or mediate between the king and the Greeks, marking a dark turn in the relations between the Antigonid ruler and the rest of the peninsula. By the end of 213, the war between Rome and Macedonia had yet to see any serious escalation. Philip took the advantage of the fighting in Sicily and Tarentum to spend the summer campaigning in Illyria, where he had made substantial progress forcing the local tribe to submit to his authority. By taking the fortified city of Lysus, modern Lege in Albania, the king was able to once again secure a position to build another fleet in the spring of 212. This appears to be the catalyst that compelled the Senate to take direct action. In 211, Marcus Livinus successfully managed to broker an alliance between the Republic and another power in Greece, the Aetolian League. According to the terms of the treaty, both parties were to conduct operations against the Macedonians from Aetolia to Corsaira. Rome was to be given the plunder, while the Aetolians could retain any land or cities that they captured. With Macedonian power on the rise, and nursing grudges over their defeat in 217, the Aetolians did not need much convincing to take up arms against Philip, especially when Livinus pointed out the Republic's successes abroad. Ironically, most of the fighting of the First Macedonian War was really going to be waged between the various states of Greece, essentially making it a continuation of the original social war. Messene, Elise, Sparta, and King Attalus I of Pergamon would eventually be included in the anti-Macedonian alliance, with Attalus being named one of the leading generals of the Aetolian League in 209. The Illyrian rulers Skirtilatus and Pleuratus would also be brought into the fold, groups who historically have raided Macedonia for centuries. The Senate's unwillingness to try and claim any territory argues against the notion of eastward-minded expansionism and the arrangement kept the Antigonid ruler distracted from pursuing an Italian invasion without having to divert much manpower from their war against Hannibal. The Romans and Aetolians immediately began to coordinate with one another, with Livinus capturing the Acarnanian port of Enniadae and the island of Zacynthus, both of which were handed over to Aetolia. Philip retaliated by marching out from Pella to raid the Adriatic, Illyria, and Thrace over the winter of 211. The Roman response in 210 was to seize the islands of Antikyra and Aegina, the latter of which was sold to Attalus I for a small sum of 30 talents to entice his aid against Macedonia. By this time, the other anti-Macedonian states joined the alliance, 
and the Romans had replaced Livinus with a new proconsul, Publius Sulpicius Galba, who believed that the situation was contained enough that he sent the legions back to Italy, keeping only the fleet on hand. The Republic was clearly content with letting the Greeks do the fighting, but was supposed to provide naval support at all possible opportunities. Since the Aetolian League had technically broken the peace of Naupactus and gained assistance from many outside powers, Philip needed to pivot his campaign towards re-establishing the hegemony over Greece. In the spring of 209, the Macedonian army campaigned down towards central Greece, intent on breaking through the famous Pass of Thermopylae, now garrisoned by the Aetolians and Pergamenes, and he had won two separate battles along the way. It was at the city of Phalera where the king was approached by a group of diplomats from Athens, Chios, Rhodes, Athamania, and Ptolemaic Egypt, looking to try and broker an end to the war. While there certainly would have been economic reasons to restore the peace, Livy states that these parties feared the possibility that Philip would have won the war outright and taken over the entirety of Greece. It is also apparent that they did not want Rome or Pergamon to invade Greece either, so ending the fighting before it got completely out of hand was in their best interests. The king agreed to a request for a truce, and a meeting was held at the Achaean city of Aegeum between himself and the Aetolians. Evidently, the Romans were not invited to the table, but the proconsul Galba showed up in nearby Napactus with fleet in tow to offer his support. In spite of their recent defeats, the Aetolians demanded that Philip return the city of Antantania to the Romans and any of his Illyrian conquests to Scardalatus and Pleratus. The king refused to entertain these ludicrous terms, accusing the Aetolians of acting like the conqueror when he was the one seated in a position of strength and angrily left the table. With the king's departure, the war resumed its course. Turning away from Macedonia for a moment, let us return to the affairs of the Achaean League. Aratus's death had left the League effectively leaderless for the first time since its inception, and there were few who would realistically be able to bind the Achaeans together in the face of either Aetolian aggression or the domination of Philip. However, hope for the Achaeans had returned in 212 through the man known as Philippoemen of Megalopolis. Born in 253, Philippoemen distinguished himself during the Cleomenian War, assisting in the evacuation of his home city and taking part in a major cavalry charge at the Battle of Salazia in 222. In contrast to the more diplomatic Aratus, the Megapolitan was better fit to serve as a military commander than a politician spending the next decade on campaign in Crete on behalf of the League while earning a reputation for simple living. The chaos of the First Macedonian War recalled him back to mainland Greece, where he was elected as Strategos of the Achaean League. He and the king launched a coordinated attack against the now hostile city of Elis in the summer of 209 after the Aegean talks, which saw Philip take thousands of prisoners, and during a cavalry engagement, Philippoemen killed the Elean cavalry commander in personal combat. In spite of the victory, Philippoemen was dismayed to find out that the fighting prowess of the Achaeans had withered since the war against Cleomenes, and the army needed a drastic reform. The infantry had finally made the transition from the now archaic hoplite into a Macedonian-style pike phalanx, and the cavalry was re-drilled into a more effective unit. This reform could not have come at a better time, for they now were about to face an attack from Sparta in 208. The Lacedaemonians were now under the control of a tyrant named Machanidas, 
who at some point took power during the interim after the defeat of Cleomenes. Philippoamen brought the news to Philip's attention, but this was only one of many crises that suddenly faced the king. Just after the Aelian campaign in late 209, the Dardanians invaded Macedonia and took nearly 20,000 captives back to Illyria, in spite of Philip marching halfway across Greece in only 10 days to try and stop them. During the following spring, the Achaean embassy warning of the Spartan attack was accompanied by other messengers. The RDI were mobilizing in the west, the Thracians planned to invade the country should he march out of his kingdom, the Aetolians had doubled down on the fortification of Thermopylae and aggressively raided his allies, and a combined fleet of Roman and Pergamene ships intended to breach the Thermaic Gulf and invade Euboea. This was a disastrous turn of fortunes compared to the year prior, and a lesser monarch would have crumpled in light of so many threats. Philip's determination would not accept surrender as a possibility, and he instead pursued each problem with a renewed sense of vitality. After organizing the defenses of his own kingdom and that of his allies, the king led a march against the city of Heraclea to raid a meeting between Attalus and the Aetolians. By using an elaborate system of fire signals across central Greece, Philip was able to defend against an invasion of northern Locris, breaking through the defenses at Thermopylae and laying waste to the would-be invading force of Pergamene and Aetolian troops. King Attalus himself was nearly taken captive during the fighting and when word of a full-scale attack on Pergamon by his neighbor Prusius of Bithynia reached his tent, he made his exit from Greece, taking no further part in the war. Philip's renewed sense of energy had now deprived the anti-Macedonian alliance with one of its key members, while the Roman proconsul Galba had spent his time conducting small naval raids to little effect. Sparta, too, would fall out of this alliance shortly afterwards. In mid-207, the Lacedaemonian tyrant Machanidas led an invasion of the Achaean city of Mantinea in the Peloponnese. Philippoamen led the reorganized army against the Spartans, and though Machanidas' cavalry managed to break through the Achaean line during the initial stages of the battle, the Megapolitan commander kept his phalanx together and crushed the Spartan infantry. Their ranks crumbled, and Machanidas was killed after Philippoamen chased down and speared his horse during the rout. The situation had once again reversed the fortunes of the war's participants. As their allies broke away one by one, the Aetolians found themselves lacking the support they needed against a revitalized Macedonia and Achaean League. Rome appeared to have very little interest in contributing beyond some light naval assistance, as all efforts were directed to dislodging Carthaginian power in Italy and Spain. It is perhaps because of this that the war took a new direction. Meetings were held between the Aetolians and Macedonians by outside mediators throughout 207, and Appian explains that Galba had intentionally sabotaged the efforts, though his account is not without controversy. Our one fragment of Polybius records the speech of one of the mediators, who takes a decidedly anti-Roman position in his argument for the Aetolians to cease their war. He argued that the Aetolians were fighting against the best interests of Greece and allying with the barbarians from across the Adriatic, who very well may turn against them and the rest of the Greek world should they emerge the victor in their war with Hannibal. This argument of Hellenic unity against the growing power of Rome in the West has repeatedly shown itself in Polybius's work, but it's difficult to see whether the Greeks actually had such opinions about these foreign affairs or if it is a literary construction of the historian. It certainly makes more sense than Agelaus's anti-Roman speech at the Peace of Naupactus in 217, 
given the mediator's obvious attempts to divide the Aetolians from the Romans. Evidently, the Aetolians did seem to take the ambassador's words into consideration, though the talks ultimately failed that year. Events between the end of 207 to the middle of 206 are unfortunately murky due to a gap in our sources, which is especially frustrating given that we come to a turning point of the war. During the time after the meeting, the king launched an invasion into Aetolia and destroyed their sanctuary at Thermos. This appears to have been the final nail in the coffin for any further resistance, as the Aetolians ended their role in the war by agreeing to a peace treaty with Philip around the summer of 206. These arrangements were done independently of the Romans, who believed it to be a betrayal of their alliance, the terms of which specifically outlined against such an action. In fairness to the Aetolians, the Republic's unwillingness to contribute legions to combat the Macedonians on Greek soil meant that all they could offer was naval support, despite Aetolian requests for assistance as they faced the brunt of Philip's attacks. Hannibal had not yet been driven out of Italy, and the Senate did not want to see a Macedonian counter-invasion. In the spring of 205, Galba had been replaced with the commander Publius Sempronius Tuditanus, who led a fleet of 35 ships and 11,000 legionaries across the Adriatic. Tuditanus's aim was to combat the Macedonian attacks in Illyria, and hopefully encourage the Aetolians to renege on their agreement. While the armies of the proconsul and king circled one another over the next few months, no set-piece engagement ever took place. Summer saw the arrival of ambassadors from the Epirot League, who were deeply concerned about the fighting moving south into their territory, and they convinced both Philip and Tuditanus to declare a ceasefire and meet at the city of Phoenicae. After nearly ten years, the Romans and Macedonians agreed to end the war. Philip was technically violating his own treaty with Carthage, though the possibility of any further Punic assistance had long since disappeared and the Republic, in turn, was probably interested in focusing their attention on their upcoming invasion of Africa the following year. The First Macedonian War ended rather anticlimatically, all things considered, as each side was forced to concede parts of Illyria to one another. The Senate achieved its objectives in preventing Philip from reinforcing Carthage, without having to invest a significant amount of manpower or money, but the Macedonian king's now strengthened position in Illyria was an uncomfortable reality. Philip's first attempts at world conquest were not as likely as he envisioned them to be, but his stranglehold over Greece had tightened. Though they lost their longtime champion, Aratus, the Achaean League found a worthy successor in Philippoamen, who could potentially be counted upon to curb the behavior of the Antigonid ruler, which had grown increasingly despotic in the interim. Whatever the circumstance, it seems that a westward expansion was not in Philip's cards anymore. However, Shortly after the Peace of Phoenicae, news came from Egypt revealing the death of Ptolemy IV Philopater and the revolt of his Egyptian subjects. The balance of power that had kept the three great kingdoms of the Hellenistic world in check throughout the 3rd century was now shattered, as the Ptolemies were on the verge of extinction, leaving their domain ripe for the picking. With a fresh army and many campaigns under his girdle, Philip looked instead to the east for his glorious conquests lands formerly occupied by his ancestors Antigonus the One-Eyed and Demetrius Polyarchides. As the poet Alcaeus of Messini so begrudgingly put it, nothing would stand against the Macedonians' ruler's dreams of world domination. Quote, Heighten your walls, Olympian Zeus. All is accessible to Philip. Shut the brazen gates of the gods. 
earth and sea lie vanquished under Philip's scepter. There remains the road to Olympus.